0: If you have your Bibles, open them up this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians. Book of 1 Corinthians. It is the convocation, the time when we are called together to begin a new semester. As we do this, there's no greater thing we can do than go to God's Word and seek His wisdom to see what He would have to say to us. And so we go to the book of 1 Corinthians. As you all well know, Corinth was a city that was an important trade route It was also a city that was characterized by a lot of different issues. In fact, I remember preaching at uh, Corinth Baptist Church, and the whole time I'm preaching there, I'm sitting here thinking, have they ever read the New Testament? You know, Corinth is categorized by sexual immorality, taking each other to court, eating food offered to idols, corruption, pride, arrogance. And here we see... In the early church, what often we idolize and say, let's get back to the early church, we see all of the issues in the early church that they were facing. And when we look around today, we see similar issues that we are facing as well. I'll give you a more proper introduction to the book of Corinthians at a different time. But for the sake of time, let me just tell you that in Acts 18, it records Paul's journey to Corinth. It records his meeting with Aquila and Priscilla. It talks about how he stayed there for a year and a half, at a minimum at least, to plant the church at Corinth. He later then went to Ephesus. We suspect he wrote this letter about A.D. 55. It would have been his fourth letter after Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, but it was not his first letter to the church at Corinth because as we see in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he indicates that there was a previous letter that he had wrote to them. And so this is probably the second letter, but it is the first letter we have recorded in Scripture. And so it is the inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God. In 1 Corinthians, he begins with a greeting, and in this greeting, for the first nine verses, all I ask you to take note of is the fact that he mentions the name Jesus Christ nine times in nine verses. And then when we move to verse 10, let me read for you in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Here we see in these verses 10 through 17... First, a division and then questions and then the ultimate answer to all divisions. You'll see if you look there in verse 10, it says, I appeal to you, brothers. And the word appeal is parakaleo. It means to call alongside. And he's saying out to brothers and sisters, I'm calling you to come alongside me, to walk with me, to journey with me. I want you to come alongside, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verses one through nine, listen as I read to you how many times he mentions the name Jesus Christ. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who are in every place called upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that God was given to you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge and even the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you were not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You think you get the point here? He's beating them over the head with the words, Jesus Christ, because he's setting it up and he knows exactly where he's going. And he's going to say to you, there are divisions among you, but the answer is right in front of your face. And the answer is Jesus Christ. So I call you alongside me. I call you by the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among us, that there be no schisms among us. He's saying, I want you to be called together as a fabric woven, intermingled among you each other as threads that are knitted tightly together, so that there be no schisms, no tearing of the robe, no tearing of the garment, so that we all come together in Christ Jesus. That's what the call is. Now, why does he start off in this way? He says, I want you to be reminded that you're in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, brothers. I mean, that is, each one of you says, I'm a Paul or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now think about what he's saying here. Because he's saying to you, some of you say, I follow Paul. Now look at his order. What he's doing is he's placing himself on the lowest tier. He starts off with Paul, and then he moves from Paul to Apollos, and from Apollos to Cephas, or Peter. And for some reason, Paul liked to call Peter Cephas, but this is Peter, the ultimate apostle who preached, and 3,000 were saved, and he says, Peter, and then he says, Jesus Christ. So he places himself down at the lowest possible level, and he says, there are divisions among you. Some of you say, I follow Paul. Well, now, why would there be divisions? We don't know. Some commentators have speculated that the divisions existed because you had Paul and you had Peter, and we know from the book of Galatians, which was written previous to this letter, that they were combating at one point in time over legalism, and so some may have said, well, I like Paul better because he has freedom, or I like Peter better because he's a little more legalistic. Or some might have said, and we know from 2 Corinthians, that Paul wasn't necessarily the... The most handsome. He wasn't necessarily the coolest guy. He didn't necessarily have the the wisest and most eloquent words. And so they might have said, Paul, you're a little stumpy. You, You just don't look that good. You're not that pleasing to the eye and you're not that intelligent. So I like Apollos better because Apollos Oh, well, Apollos wears cufflinks and a nice suit and he looks sharp and he's got the tie clip on just in the right position. And all of his words demonstrate the eloquence of his speech. And we know that Apollos, who was pulled aside by Aquila and Priscilla and educated more rightly in the gospel, then went back to Corinth and ministered. We know from Acts 18 that he defended the faith greatly there in Acts 18. And so some may have said, well, you know, Apollos is more my style. Some may have said, you know what? I've eaten at McDonald's once or two or three too many times myself and I look more like Paul. I like him better. Some may have said, well, see, you people just aren't religious enough. You've got to be a little more religious, so I like Peter better. And then you had the guys with the bracelets on. You remember our bracelet buddies? You had the guys with the bracelets on that said WWJD. They said, we like Jesus better. And so everybody's running around the church looking for their bracelet buddy. Paul, Apollos, Peter, or Jesus. We don't have any divisions here at Cedarville, do we? How many of you are freshmen? How many of you are sophomores? Juniors? Seniors? And none of you yelled. I'm quite surprised. I guess it's because we're dressed in our nice robes and all. You know, we have divisions among different groups. You're ranked by how long you've been here. Who's better Kind of hard to argue after we just talked about divisions, right? You know we have divisions at institutions like this amongst faculty and staff. We have divisions at institutions like this amongst assistant professors, associate professors, full professors, distinguished professors, tenured professors. You have differences among which divisions the better. Is it the student life and Christian ministry division? Is it the academic division? What about sports teams? Which sport's the best sport? I heard a couple of you holler out that time. I heard baseball. Is baseball the best sport? You know, divisions are all over the place, aren't they? Any of you have divisions in the teams that you like? I've heard something up this way about. I can't remember their names. What they, they seem to play football. I don't. They're not in the SEC, so I'm not really sure they play football, but. is Michigan and then that team with the big zero what is it Ohio oh and then there's pro sports too there's there's not much division there though because you know there's only one of the three teams that have won six Super Bowls so some of you are out there already mad at me right now you're done it's over And then we have real serious division, right? We have issues where we say, I like this personality better. I like that personality better. I like this guy who's been here longer. I like that guy. I don't like this new guy. You know what Paul says to him? He puts himself at the lowest. He doesn't take sides, he doesn't defend. What he says is he asks three sets of questions. Three questions. He says, Number one, is Christ divided? What's the answer to the question, is Christ divided? No. It's a rhetorical question. He knows the answer. We know the answer. Is Christ divided? No. He asked a second question too. Was Paul crucified for you? What's the answer to that? No. No. You know what he's trying to remind them of here, though? Not just Paul. He puts himself in there because he's humbling himself. But he's saying to all of them, no human person died on a cross for your sin. And so our unity is not in any one human individual, but our unity is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says next, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The answer to that is no. And here, it's kind of funny if you just read it and look at it here. In verse 14, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that they were baptized in my name. Now, he he says that he's saying to them, I don't want you saying that I'm your savior or that you were baptized in my name so that you're my follower because baptism is an identification with someone. Romans 6 tells us that we are identified with Christ and that through the baptism, we are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. And so that identification, he says, does not come in my name, it comes in the name of Christ. But then here we find out that, that Paul either forgot or, or somebody that may have been helping him uh, write things, reminded him. And so you here you have in verse 16, Ah, you have this reminder. Anybody in here ever forgotten anything? I am thoroughly glad that I see this in scripture because it tells me that perhaps Paul was about to forget something and and maybe it was Stephanus because he's mentioned at the end of the book who reminds him and says, wait a second, Paul, you baptized me too. And so here he inserts it and he says, I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So there comes his disclaimer, right? I can't remember if I baptized anybody else. He starts off really bold, has to backtrack. You get to verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. You want to know what the answer to division is, it's Jesus Christ. But don't miss another theological implication in this verse. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Some of you may have come out of backgrounds where you've heard it said, that baptism is required for salvation. Or you may have friends or you may have people that you know, relatives that are in traditions that would say baptism is required for salvation. That's not in the New Testament. But some people say when you look at Peter and it says, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, that it connects the two so that baptism and salvation go together and that's how you're saved. And then the argument comes back and we say baptism is not required for salvation because of the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross wasn't baptized. He was saved because Jesus says, this day you will be with me in paradise. Well, then those who believe in baptismal regeneration come back and they say to you, well, that was Jesus and Jesus can make an exception, so that's okay. The response back to that is, what do you do with 1 Corinthians? And in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of the rest of you, for I was not called to baptize, but I was called to preach the gospel. And there's an obvious distinction between baptism and preaching the gospel. And so what you need to realize is the implications theologically from this verse is that baptism does not save you. It's the gospel that saves you. Now, baptism is the first step of obedience. It is your identification. It is your outward profession of an inward decision that you have made, but it is not salvific in nature. Look at what he says here. It's the answer. He gives three negatives and one positive. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize. Baptism's not most essential. Christ did not send me with words of eloquent wisdom. We're here at an academic institution. And as we go through chapter 2 and following, you're going to see wisdom. You're going to see worldly wisdom on one side. You're going to see God's wisdom put on another side. The thing that you cannot allow to happen to you in your own mind is for you to think that wisdom is what saves you. Wisdom is not what saves you. Worldly wisdom has never saved anyone. God's wisdom, the logos from his son who became flesh, that is the wisdom of God that is salvific in nature. And Paul says, I didn't come to you with words of eloquent wisdom. If you can convince somebody that they need to accept the gospel, somebody else can talk them out of it. It's not about your wisdom, it's about the foolishness of the cross and what Jesus Christ did and him drawing us to salvation to recognize that we are all sinners before a holy God and that we must repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in him. Now right here at the very beginning of the semester, I want you all to know that if there has not been a time Where you have experienced conviction of your own sin. If there has not been a time where the Holy Spirit has just wrecked your heart because of sin and you realize that you were a sinner before a holy and righteous God, and a time where you fell on your knees and you repented and you were broken and you were crying, perhaps, and you realized, I'm a sinner and he's holy, and I'm not. And at that point, you put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. He died on the cross to pay what we couldn't pay so that we could be reconciled to God. If there hasn't been a time in your life where you've repented and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then I'm not sure you're saved at this point. You say, well, that's a mean thing to say to us on the first day of convocation here, huh? No, there's nothing more that we want than for every person at Cedarville University to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're not 100% sure that you're saved, immediately after this service, I want you to go to your professor in any class and tell your professor, I need to make sure of my salvation. They will stop the class and they will talk to you about your salvation because that is the most important thing that we do here at Cedarville University. It's the gospel. He says, not to come with eloquent words of wisdom, not to baptize, and not to empty the cross of his power. We're going to learn in the next section that the cross is a stumbling block. It's a scandal line. It causes people to stumble. We're not to go make the cross acceptable. We're to be faithful to the message that God has delivered to us in sharing the gospel wherever we go. That's our calling and that's what we're supposed to do. When we look out, if Christianity is too accepted, we need to ask ourselves, have we weakened and have we watered down the message so that we're not boldly presenting the gospel of Christ? And you won't hear me boldly. You won't hear me call you to to bow your heads, to close your eyes, to take a step, to do something in secret. We need to boldly call people to follow Christ because Christ boldly did what he did for us on the cross and he did it in front of others and he didn't do it in any ashamed fashion and we don't need to be ashamed of the gospel and we don't need to be ashamed of Christ. We need to be bold for the gospel of Jesus Christ, standing firm for the truth of the gospel, not being offensive intentionally, but not backing down from the truth of his word either. He gives us the answer. What is it? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied. And then he moves on in verse 18 and he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, is the power of God. Here's the answer. All the divisions that we have, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, Ohio State, Michigan, the Bengals, the Browns, the Steelers, football, basketball, golf, volleyball, athletes versus singers, faculty versus staff. Here's our unifying factor. We are here for the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It's the gospel that unifies us. And it's my prayer that we will be unified behind the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to evaluate your own life and ask yourself the question, has there ever truly been a time when I've repented of my sins, placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If you haven't, Today's the day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, I do pray that we will be known at Cedarville University for the gospel. Father, I pray that we won't be known as much by what we're against as we'll be known by what we're for. Lord, I pray that even with all the opportunities for division, that you would help us to maintain unity because we see that the gospel is more important and what unifies us is more important than anything that separates us. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he did for us on the cross. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.